Hello, and welcome to the Transcending CRM podcast, a show where we explore how the Salesforce ecosystem has impacted the careers of fellow trailblazers and the businesses that have leveraged dynamic growth from the platform. This podcast is brought to you by Silverline. Silverline is a Salesforce digital transformation consultancy headquartered in New York City, specializing in financial services, media and entertainment, and the healthcare industries. I'm your host, JP Owens, Managing Director of Banking and Lending at Silverline, along with my co-host, Elliot Spence, Principal Consultant at Silverline. Hey, Elliot, how you doing? Great, JP. How are you doing today? Good. Excited for our, our next guest. Uh, I think we both were at the same Dreamforce conference where I first met Ryan. Um, you, I think we were just talking before the show, you were out collecting about 800 prizes um, at your first Dreamforce that, that week. That's about what I do at Dreamforce. I just run around, win stuff, get the swag, and then head home. Looking forward to it. Get your drones and maybe a car next time. All right. So today we are joined by Ryan Johnson. Ryan is the Chief Customer Officer at Monit. Prior to Monit, Ryan spent over seven years at City National Bank as the SVP of Corporate Strategy, was part of EY's customer practice, and had a variety of roles at American Express, including their Salesforce program. Welcome, Ryan. Please take a moment and tell us more about yourself and your current role. Hi, everybody. Great to speak with everyone. Really interesting background on my side. So somebody who kind of fell by accident into financial services as JP mentioned, it's been a long career in this fun little intersection between business and technology, focusing on the ways that organizations that have a really strong customer focus build the right strategies, the right approach, the right stakeholders, the right governance, and then the right capabilities to help them win. Uh, currently running the customer program at Monit, which is a Boston-based fintech that works really closely with uh, the banking industry to particularly business bankers to help them support their small business clients. Uh, we provide insights and guidance to business owners so they can make more informed decisions, which are deployed in their online banking systems. And then on the banker side, we provide them with insights and guidance to help them more proactively engage with their clients and better match them up with the areas they should be uh, helping support them, uh, generally in tools that bankers use like Salesforce. Well, before we talk Salesforce more specifically, I know we first met, I think, at a roundtable at Dreamforce. It might have been 2017, 2018. But can you share more about your career journey and what led you to the financial services space and now Monit? Yeah. So funny for me, it was never this plan to get into financial services. I had come out of a graduate school that had a huge focus on international business. And prior to picking up or after picking up the MBA, it was a plan to go off and spend some time overseas building a business career. Like all things, sometimes life catches you by surprise. In my case, it was a positive thing where I ended up meeting a nice young woman at a Starbucks who's now my wife. And in that moment, she was uh, currently working at a governor's office out in Arizona and needed to find a job domestically. And in that role, really had this great opportunity to you know, cross the American Express to build a career pathway that went from revenue management, uh, product strategy. And then about the time I think we met, uh, actually probably after that, I go back and start thinking because all the dream forces and all the events tend to kind of merge together. I go back like the first dream force for me was the Black Crows to kind of age it for a bit. But in that timeline, really focusing on how do you build a global capability that helps support the relationship managers that American Express used in their go-to-market to help support the merchant services business, both the United States as well as international teams. Had some fun in there, then moved to EY, part of their customer practice, which worked with large financial institutions to help them, one, better define their strategy, and then two, putting programs in place to help them better support their clients. And uh, then spent some time playing in the fintech space, and then really had a job opportunity that was too good to pass up, uh, where I joined uh, City National uh, to lead the strategy program there, uh, $36 billion at the time, and uh, really was a remarkable opportunity to watch an organization go very quickly. 
uh, over time. But with all things in banking, sometimes you see the folks on the fintech side, they're having a lot more fun. Uh, it's made the leap into the more entrepreneurial side. I've been uh, over here at Mono for about the past year. I also like how you talked about how you kind of like just fell into financial services. I'm one in the same. Uh, my my background with, you know, college and grad school was sport management. And my whole life's revolved around the sport of wrestling and always envisioned myself having a career there. And I kind of fell into financial services and then became one of those an accidental admin, as everybody calls it. And speaking of like the accidental admin or accidentally or just falling into Salesforce, when did you get your first exposure to the Salesforce platforms and what did you what did you do to dive into the ecosystem? Yeah, it was remarkable. I joined a team that was really early on at American Express and helping set up their Salesforce programs. It was a team that I was you know, initially attracted to because of the culture. It was a highly articulate, very thoughtful director who was building a program where they were uh, really trying to solve the challenge of how do you help support and drive a best-in-class sales organization. And when I joined the team, uh, that was my first time I really got my hands in the Salesforce. And for me, the thing that really was remarkable, and it was almost that epiphany moment to say, well, shoot, they've configured a platform that allows a business to think about how they operate, and they're no longer limited by the confines of slow, static technology that takes months to figure out. And the more I began to work with the team is this epiphany of, well, shoot, we've got a single platform here. We're innovating faster than we've ever done before. We're designing business processes. We're putting together uh, capabilities that allow people to uh, be more effective, be more knowledgeable. And then all that activity being rolled up in a clear dashboard was um, remarkable to me at the time. Because everything we've done today has been around like big old mainframe type tools. And so that pivot that really kicked in was this idea of you can go back and reimagine how business should operate and then work within a defined structure where you've got a business-led technology-enabled team that can go out and build things relatively quickly. The thing that was most remarkable for me is the ability to think up, design, review with stakeholders, and then build stuff in the matter of weeks or months, not making this uh, awful experience of, hey, I have an idea, and two years later, I might be able to fund it. I mean, we were doing some really cool stuff really quickly. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's one of the biggest like values of the Salesforce platform, you know, all the different platforms is how quickly you can think of something, well, identify an issue or a problem or efficiency you want to build, design the architecture, how you want to do it, build it, and then test it and go live. And like you said, it can be, it can be the matter of weeks. It can, I mean, honestly, it could be a matter of days on depending on how quickly you want to go. It, it just allows us to quickly pivot and you know, build those efficiencies into the platform. You know, Elliot, just kind of add on that too. It's not just the technology, but it was the best practices. It was the knowledge resources. It was the full ecosystem that had been rallied around a technology platform that I thought was remarkable. You know, many other cases, when you go off and you buy software, you're trying to solve one or two smaller problems, and then you you know, buy it and you got to figure out how to implement it and manage it and maintain it and all the joys of working with compliance and vendor management and IT and so on. But this was really the first one where it's, you had a network of individuals that had, here's technology, it's flexible enough, you can use it. And then we've got resources that can teach you how to use it. We can introduce you to peers who are going to use it. And it was a celebration of empowering folks that otherwise in an organization might be buried in a hierarchy, finding them out and celebrating their successes and empowering them to uh, contribute more than they normally would have with inside that organization too. That I thought was you know, culturally very fascinating and how they kind of approached uh, the market. Awesome. Yeah. So tell us more about your first Salesforce project. And, you know, this may be turning back the clock a little bit, making you think really hard, you know, with all your time on the platform. But tell us more about your first Salesforce project and the problems you were trying to solve. 
Yeah, the biggest one was, I kind of think at the time, it was a, we were a New York-based team with folks in Phoenix, London, Australia, Singapore, India, and Australia. And we were trying to build a consistent capability set that would suit all markets, but allow for local market differentiation where it really did matter. And so the biggest thing we needed to figure out up front was how do you build advocacy within the lines of business? How do you build a strong pipeline of collecting ideas and then a governance model that allowed you to build and decline, build and deploy capabilities out to the different markets? And so it was very much a remarkable way of thinking about mobilizing an organization, finding people that care and were drivers of change, building sponsorship and advocacy from a leadership group so we have proper governance and proper sponsorship to do the things we wanted to do. And then thinking about how do you collect, prioritize, and then manage uh, you know, kind of inbound requests and then out through a development cycle and then be ready to deploy and, and build that advocacy on the reverse side, which was uh, then educating the team of the new capabilities that were coming their way in a way that really answered that's what's in it for me. And that what's in it for me for the relationship manager, the regional manager, then the executive as well. And if we're going to go out there and you know, drink the Kool-Aid on everything that we were selling out to the team, we needed to use Salesforce to do that. And I remember, you know, very fondly this idea of if you're doing sales management, it's not terribly different than building kind of a capabilities pipeline. And so we were going out there and identifying, we built inside of the Salesforce experience itself, a governance model where we were taking inbound requests, we were sending valuation scores, we were assigning them out to our developers who then built it out. And it turned into a really interesting model. We were mimicking a lot of the sales pipelines, certainly did an opportunity with projects. You know, you get a project in, you score it. You work with the different stakeholders and you push it out the market, but doing so at scale with multiple markets, with multiple leaders, and almost that human side of taking who cares about the prioritization is how do you communicate and tell a story back out to your different sponsors and stakeholders um, that really resonated with them and got them excited and engaged, and then finding ways to rally and take that excitement into a change management cycle of uh, encouraging their peers to jump on board as well. No, I really like how you're highlighting how much involvement the stakeholders had. And, you know, I envision that more of like the, you know, the Salesforce, the center of excellence you always hear, you know, having the key stakeholder involvement and then driving it all the way from, you know, the thought process from discovery to implementation testing. And then you're highlighting change management. And that's one of the areas that I think is so often forgot about is, well, we built all this really cool stuff to solve all these issues. We're just going to roll it out. And you you know, change management is kind of put on the back burner, but you're highlighting, you know, driving it through change and getting involvement from the the end user. So that's awesome. It's the blueprint for success right there on the Salesforce implementation side. We were lucky. This is back in 2010 when that center of excellence design was something that was really paramount up front with some forward-thinking leaders that you know, recognize the value business-led technology enabled. And that nuance there being business-led around setting the vision, the priority, the client engagement, and then on the uh, kind of tech-enabled side was thinking about all of the subtleties that they needed to manage on their side, which is how do you manage a bucket of funding versus going through individual project requests? How do you manage a review and development cycle where you can start to build things into sprints and deploy early versus some of the slower SDLC cycles? And then the ability to have that team really empowered to talk to groups like InfoSecurity that were really nervous at the time because 2010, cloud was still relatively new, encryption wasn't available. How do you build a really strong confidence set on the technology that was being delivered, not just met the organization's current standards, but exceeded it in many cases? We had some really funny stories that pop out of those well for things like the uh, 
you know, the info security person that comes back and says, well, we've got best in class, and this is not at Amex, but, you know, we have best in class IT security uh, coming from a team of five. And then you point over and say, well, Salesforce has got a team of, you know, infinitely larger best in class PhDs building out the technology. Um, why don't we just connect the two of you together and uh, have that opportunity to learn? And, you know, kudos to Salesforce. They were always happy in bringing forward some of their expertise to meet with our experts. And there's this really interesting melding of minds that, uh, unanimously came out with the IT side on the FI walking away saying, great, not only are we comfortable with them and what they've done, we have some new ideas of things that we should be doing inside of our organization as well. Yeah, I think that's an important piece that we maybe don't talk about enough, but not just getting your counterparts or your enablers at the organization comfortable with the technology, but bringing them in early on some of the use cases and getting them more comfortable with the idea of like, this is just the starting point. We're going to have more, like we're not going to build this once and walk away. Like we're going to need to be engaged with you going forward. So I think that's really important to a long-term successful program. And then I think about any program, you're going to get bogged down with those questions at some point of time, get it out on paper, get it cleared up at the onset. The teams are going to work great together. They talk to your peers all the time. Um, they know their topics and, you know, come to the decision early. And then the rest of the time you start talking about business opportunities and building versus uh, what are the uh, anchors we're going to toss out through a project. Exactly. So we talked a little bit about some of your success on the platform at other organizations. And you mentioned in your intro, you saw people having more fun at some of these fintechs. So could you tell us a little bit more about what led to your new role at Monet and what are some of your top initiatives in 2023? Yeah. So Monet's really remarkable. And I put it this way, if I'm a banker, Today, a lot of the time I spend talking to clients it ends up being kind of these uh, awkward starting conversations once or twice, maybe four times a year if you're lucky on the SMB side for things like, hey, how's your golf game? Where'd you go on vacation? Uh, how about the Patriots? And the kind of fishing conversations that you spend in that limited period of time, you know, relationship building, but ends up being very topical and very you know, nice to do, but you really don't uh, get down to the crux of the problem. And a lot of it goes back to that really human side. If I'm a business owner, I'm going to sit down in a client meeting. Uh, in many cases, uh, they're not necessarily finance and accounting people. And those moments, those rare moments of opportunity where they meet with the banker, uh, it can feel awkward. What should I talk about? I don't want to disclose too much because there's some things I'm embarrassed about, or here's some things I do want to talk about, but don't feel confident necessarily speaking about it. And so you end up with the business owner becoming less prepared than they should be. And on the opposite side, the bankers, in many cases, what they're doing is in that limited time, because their portfolios are sort of big, they got a little window of opportunity to look at their clients' information prior to these meetings. They're pulling up Salesforce, saying, what are my past notes? What did we talk about last time? Do I have any pipeline items open? And so when they sit down, it turns into a fishing conversation. And so what I found Monet to be really fascinating, so just for quick background, Monet's a two-sided platform mentioned earlier, uh, one giving insights back out to business owners consuming their accounting data and turned it into a very easy to consume uh, bit of insight for things like cash flow forecasting, uh, digital business insights uh, for things they should be paying attention to, uh, event scenario planning, and then competitive benchmarking, which really gives uh, the business owner a sense of their performance and the performance relative to peers. And then on the banker side, as mentioned earlier, uh, they get some really great insights, provide uh, guidance back to them for things like, where are my top competitors? What's my share of wallet? What are the next best actions I should be thinking about that are all derived from the client's financial profile? And so with that bit of insight, if you can reimagine that experience of a business owner goes to a meeting, they had an opportunity to prepare themselves in just you know, five to 15 minutes prior to that meeting, that takes all that historically looking accounting data and starts to forecast it into what's happening next. And here's how my company's forecasted to perform in the future. 
they're ready to have real conversations about the things that they care about based off of the historical and the future projections. And then the bankers who are able to show up and sit down for those meetings, they too are far more prepared uh, to have really detailed conversations about uh, the things that their clients care about. And theoretically, and actually thematically, you end up with a scenario where both parties in that short moment of time end up having far more material, far more in-depth questions and answers um, over the course of the conversation that then drives a deeper relationship between both parties. And in banking, everybody talks about this uh, you know, digitally enabled relationship manager, how do you become the trusted advisor? This is exactly the type of things that I believe will help organizations bridge that gap. And most importantly, this is the one that's, um, I think, very uh, meaningful as well, is kind of be empathetic. Like business owners are juggling chainsaws. They don't have time to sit down, put it in the tools that they already use. And at the same time, bankers, they don't have time to do this stuff either. Integrate into the platforms that they're already using, like Salesforce. So they're reinforcing the investment the bank's already made, and they're using the tools that they've already been trained to use too. And it really just simplifies everybody's lives and should build that deeper relationship over time. Well, and what I what I find most exciting about some of the things you all are doing right now is stuff we've been hearing about constantly since March around more insights, understanding cash flow of the businesses we're working with, understanding who who the competitors are, share of wallet. Those types of insights are extremely powerful, especially if we can plug it into Salesforce and leverage some of the native functionality in financial services cloud or um, enhance it with CRM analytics to drive insights and actions. I mean, that is really the secret sauce. I think everybody's trying to get implemented as soon as possible and really drive accountability. So really excited about some of the potential of the platform uh, partner with Salesforce. Yeah, we love it too. And again, it goes back to just that empathy in the day in the life. If you can simplify the experience for both parties, respect their time, and then automate the creation of a lot of that information. And in the banker's world too, is no more manual entry. You can populate that information automatically for them. It ends up in a kind of a win-win scenario for both the business owner and the banker. And then the institution itself ends up winning because they have a portfolio of more informed business owners that are more likely making more informed decisions. And thematically, the credit risk uh, goes down because of that insight they're able to get their access to. Now, this is one of my, you know, my favorite questions I ask people because it's it changes so much. And, you know, it's always good insight on to see how much people have learned on a platform from their experience from one project to the next. But was there an aspect of your Salesforce programs that you either underestimated or wish you had approached differently um, now that you've built this wealth of knowledge and this experience on the Salesforce platforms? Yeah, uh, Salesforce is a big ticket item for many executives. And when you see that price point, they tend to get excited and scared. Um, and part of that, they then start to say, well, everything's Salesforce. Can Salesforce do this? Can Salesforce do that? Um, can we just put it in Salesforce? And the answer is always, yes, you can. But what I wish I would have spent more time is coaching the executive team to not use the word Salesforce. Salesforce is a tool, it's a platform, it does amazing things, but you really want to coach the organization into bringing that idea and ideation into the DNA of the business, into the culture. And that's talking more about sales effectiveness, sales productivity, uh, or you know some of the things like the marketing cloud and service cloud, going down very specific dialogues that are business problem focused. So if there's a corporate goal of how are we going to drive sales, um, being able to go back and talk about specific KPIs that the enterprise captures and measures, and then mapping it back out to, and here's how we're going to track it, and here's how we're going to measure it. And it just so happens that the tool we're using is Salesforce. And so in that nuance, you end up with you know, a handful of things. One is people don't have the chance to blame Salesforce when they're doing something they're not supposed to. 
Um, and that's not supposed to do something that could be like not using tools. It's like, oh, I can't do it because Salesforce doesn't do it. It's like, no, it's in there. You just need to follow sales process. And then other things too, when you start to map back out, what are the goals for the organization? You're tying back in those KPIs. You end up with a scenario where there's less hesitancy to put more stuff in there because you can start to talk about the velocity of business process and business problems being solved for relatively quickly and less around a technology development cycle. Obviously, my emphasis is more on the sales side, but I've seen other groups out there in the marketing world, for example, uh, will talk about governance velocity and because of the marketing cloud capability and pre-building templates and the ability to uh, you know, build, govern, launch, and track communications at a significantly faster clip than was possible before, you end up with a very different dynamic there. Or on the service cloud, like, hey, we need to reduce our call handling costs. Well, let's talk about the resources there that drive down that enterprise KPI that just tends to be um, you know, solved for inside of the Salesforce platform. And it's really fun because once you start getting all those clouds integrated together, then it really never turns into a technology conversation. It's very business process driven. But I think about this way, it's like a question of like, how do I solve for, what's our process for accomplishing? How are we measuring and never around? What does Salesforce do? It's what can we do? Correct. Yeah, those are all really good points. And it's something we, we talked about kind of the similar things in our last episode uh, that re we recorded is too many people go in and they buy Salesforce and then they're implementing it and they're trying to build it to match all their current processes. Now, if your current process is already great and there's no issue on those and there's no efficiencies to build, that, that may be perfect. But if they're already great, why are you buying Salesforce? Why are you implementing it? So it's one of the hardest things of very often there's very difficult conversations that need to be had because people are so used to doing things, you know, X, Y, Z. And when you're implementing Salesforce and implementing all these different products Salesforce offers to build those efficiencies, things are going to be changing. And people, you know, more often than not, they are they're very scared of change. And so you're really trying to build out, you know, what's best for the organization and also while we're building out what's best for the organization, how are we going to build it to where it's also going to improve the the jobs, the lives, the um, the ways that our end users, our employees do things. So you're capturing all that in the way you talked about it is, you know, how you approach it when you're implementing these these different Salesforce pro programs. Yeah, never institutionalize bad process. Um, that's one of the risks some companies that aren't thinking forward about what they're trying to accomplish. They'll take trash and then they'll codify it. But when you start from scratch and under the nuances of a Salesforce enables things to be radically different, how do you reimagine your processes in a way that creates efficiency and transparency, uh, collaboration, and do so in a way that um, you, know, you kind of get rid of the gristle that's no longer needed. Um, you end up with a much better, more efficient organization. Yeah, and whether it's a new implementation, like taking taking advantage of the event to kind of reevaluate how you do business and how you're collaborating. I know we used to go spreadsheet hunting, or we would we'd have a change of leadership in a department, and we use all of those as opportunities to basically go in and be like, "Hey, let me let me show you what we've done for X Y Z group, and see if any of this kind of fits into your roadmap, so we can drive some efficiencies for you." And it really became like a grassroots effort of the Salesforce program team to drive value business unit to business unit. So we're constantly asked today in our roles as consultants about help, help me show the value I'm getting from the platform. Not, not can Salesforce do this, but how have we optimized our client experience? How have we optimized our internal experience or how we, we've driven more efficiency across the board? How have you and your teams in your previous roles and maybe even in your current role um, communicated the value of Salesforce or the platform or the processes you've implemented to drive growth in the, the business? 
Yeah, uh, I'll blame this a little bit on, well, currently based out in Los Angeles. I'll start with that movie trailer, Imagine a World Where, but that whole theme of if you could stop and pause and think about your ideal culture and your ideal client experience, use that to set the vision. And in many organizations on the bank side, there's you're obviously working in a regulated organization where from the top down, you have a CEO that tends to be really focused on what is the culture for the organization? How are we building a unique model, engaging with our clients? Uh, what are the metrics that matter that we focus on? But really what it comes down to is you can talk about technology all day, but if you can find the four or five personas and the stories that matter, like here's the ideal life of our client. Here's what they're going to experience because of this technology and redefine processes and how we go to work. What's the day in the life bank look like in a different environment where we can present information to them at the start of the day that they would have spent two hours fishing for? Here's what we help them prioritize their day in the life and tell very humanized stories that really, you know, you move away from the technology, you move towards an experience that nobody can argue against. One of the things that we did up front at uh, one of the institutions I was working at is we did a video at the start. It was a vision video called Meet Alvin, and it talked all about the day in the life of a client and a banker and how they were able to interact with each other in a very friendly, animated form. But when we shared it with stakeholders, everybody would look at it and say, this is great. I want that. What is it going to take to get there? And that's only at that point of time when they agree to the vision and agree to the approach that we then start to bring in more of the strategy documents behind it for the more traditional uh, called business case stuff. Like here's the cost, here's the timeline, here's our ROI expectations, here's the type of resources that we'll need. But all of that follow-up conversation became far less contentious because all the different constituents, whether it be a CEO to a business line leader to an admin, they all understood the intent of what was trying to be built out. And then when we were able to go back and demonstrate, here's what it would take to get there, the confidence level was remarkably different. The second one I'd say is really strong emphasis on governance. And that's, uh, it could be a bit of a challenge where you sit within an organization, but really trying to find the enterprise leader who has a strong sense of vision that's trying to create and drive culture and trying to drive certain metrics but also making sure that that individual is paired up with somebody on the technology side. Uh, we really want that business-led technology-enabled conversation to take place. Uh, having a fantastic executive sponsor means they're talking to their peers. They're sharing the story. They're articulating the values that you're trying to build. Uh, but then having the nuance about the technology and then the business leader allows them to break down obstacles in areas that they are empowered to break down obstacles and, and thinking about the opportunities there. Uh, the other one that always came to mind too is that building that advocacy network who are your sponsors, who are your champions internally, find them, celebrate them, empower them, take a step back, put them on stage to talk about what they're excited for. And I think that's the hardest thing for many people that are driving these programs is if you're working late nights, you're working your butt off to push things forward, you do want to get a little bit of the credit. Um, but sometimes in these scenarios, letting your advocates, letting your team members, letting your partners take center stage becomes really valuable. Because the bank you're trying to sell to, to adopt this new technology is going to hear you and say, yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool, but you don't do what I do. But when they see on stage their peers and the people that they work with on a daily basis uh, coming back and saying, this is really good and it's making my life better, uh, that tends to have a far more meaningful impact on the really personal level. That being said, you still work for an organization, but you got to be ready to do those talk up KPIs. So make sure you're measuring, make sure you've got ROI, make sure you've got pure metrics that if the challenge questions ever come through, that you've got a nice way to present it back out to the sponsor. So when they're sticking their necks out, they know that they've got some strong validity and some strong numbers that they can show to uh, demonstrate why it matters most. 
I think the KPIs is an important one. It's never too late to start measuring. Even if you didn't start measuring before you started your project, maybe you got this, maybe you had to replace an end of life system, but set some benchmarks and come back to them regularly and communicate the impact, positive or negative, you're having initially and just keep monitoring and, and measuring, I'd say. And I love the fact you've got reports and dashboards. You can automate so much of the KPI tracking, you know, be able just to create it. Even if you can't calculate it directly inside of Salesforce, so many of the inputs to strong KPI can be generated out of the uh, dashboards and reports. And you build it once, and then um, I hate to say it, when you start to manage your meetings, anybody who's administering or driving a Salesforce program, if you can take advantage of those capabilities themselves, like when we built our governance program, we captured all of the input project requests. We tracked the stakeholders. We tracked the timeline, the request, and then we built dashboards. And so when we did our weekly meetings, the time it took to prep was a whopping refresh of a dashboard. And then the team would sit down across the world and be able to see a consistent view of what was happening. And then, um, you know, if something appeared out of norm, we'd address it in the moment, just like a really strong pipeline conversation with the sales team. Yeah, and everything you're talking about is bringing back so many memories of JP and I and our previous organization and everything we ran, all of our meetings were out of Salesforce. We go into the team meetings, refresh the dashboard. We're running it from that, whether it's uh, commercial team meetings or we did the same. We captured all of our um, user stories, all the projects that we had, everything ran out of Salesforce. So we would, you know, all of our KPIs were in there. Uh, the last question I have, one we ask everybody on the podcast, it's more of a fun question. Um, we'll see if you... Uh, have as interesting of a story as some of the ones we've heard on this podcast to date so far. But we ask all of our guests to share a fun fact about yourself that not not many people may know, or it could be an accomplishment, a talent, a fun or almost unbelievable story. It could be about wandering into unknown areas of San Francisco during Dreamforce and doing some karaoke like I did. It could be anything. So what do you have for us? Yeah, uh, the big one for me is I never gave up on that international dream. So throughout my career, I've lived in six different countries, uh, either through school or professionally. Uh, I've lived in Brazil, the UK, Switzerland, France, Belgium, and the United States. And so it's that key kind of element, too, of making sure I'm staying connected to the international world. I might be working, uh, focusing on some domestic space, but the, I did my internship as an undergraduate to the State Department, had some really cool experiences there. I uh, had worked for an uh, investment group out of Switzerland uh, in grad school, and so there's that element that I never wanted to give up is that connectivity to the bigger world around us. Within all of those experiences, there's a lot of fun stories that popped up. They will stay <laughs> hidden for a while. Um, you kind of write in a memoir at the end of the day, but you just have this fun thing when you meet people from all over the world, it's this massive perspective, mischievous individuals that are also entrepreneurs and risk takers that you um, end up having a chance to build some great stories and break bread over dinner and drinks. That's awesome. I've, I've visited a lot of countries. I haven't lived abroad, but it's something I definitely want to do more of is get out and see the world because it's such a, you know, a big place and there's so much to see. And, you know, I can only do so much here in Cincinnati, but Cincinnati is a great place. But I definitely want to get out and, you know, travel and see more of the world like you have. That's awesome. And you can bring the cultural export of chili on spaghetti to uh, <laughs> the gastronomy of France. Yeah, I don't know what's better that, you know food in like Paris or is it Skyline Chili? I'm going with Skyline. And maybe some, uh, was it Grater's ice cream too? Yeah. Grater's ice cream, La Rosa's pizza. Yeah, I got some Geta as well. My uh, my grad school roommate was from Cincinnati. So uh, we got all the fine memories of uh, Houday and all things Cincinnati. 
back then i i doubt they were fond memories of cincinnati i don't know i don't want to date you too much but we had a long long 30 years there <laughs> i think they taught you the icky shuffle in elementary school <laughs> it was you had to, you had to memorize it before you could graduate high school <laughs> well thanks for joining the show today ryan really appreciate you taking the time to tell us more about your story and also what you're doing today uh, if anybody wants to find you on linkedin or hear more about what's going on at monnet where can they find you yeah, you can find me. Uh, well, there's a bazillion Ryan Johnsons out there on LinkedIn, but uh, search for M-O-N-I-T and then search for Ryan Johnson and you'll see what I looked like 10 years ago pop up in the LinkedIn picture. Perfect. Well, thank you for tuning in, everybody. Uh, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. To learn more about Silverline, you can subscribe to the Silverline blog at silverlinecrm.com or follow on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook at Silverline CRM, one word. Thanks for joining us today.